Hello there, listener. My name is Georgie Codd, and it's my great pleasure to be introducing this latest episode of the Bookbound podcast. The conversation you're about to hear originally went out live during the lockdown period in April 2020, and it features the authors Kim Sherwood and Eleanor Wasserberg, both talking about their latest books, Testament, that's Kim's, and The Light at the End of the Day, that's Eleanor's. Hosting them in this conversation is the author Dan Richards. There is a strong theme linking both of their works, and it's that both books are set during the period of the Holocaust and feature stories about Jewish families and lives during that time. I'm going to shut up now and leave it to them, and Eleanor will begin by introducing her latest work. My new novel's called um, uh, The Light at the End of the Day, um, and uh, yeah, it's really different to, to Fox Low, to my first novel, but um, I'm, I'm really proud of it, and I, I really hope readers enjoy it. Can you um, tell us a bit about how you came to, to write it? Uh, Fox Low was a gothic story. It was set in a kind of, in a, in a, in a sort of, not a haunted house, but a very culty house. There was a cult in the house and there were, people were quite controlled, um, all of that stuff. So I can see how there are links with this, but it is a very different book, isn't it? It is very different. Um, I, I, it's a book that I, I really wanted to write actually when I wrote Foxlow. I mean, I, I love Foxlow and there were, you know, I, I really did want to write that book and I cared about it. Um, but I, it was actually the project that I wanted to do on the MA and I just couldn't, I sort of lost my nerve. I couldn't um, find a way to do it. Um, it's, you know, I think, I think lots of writers have this sense of, you know, the one family story that they want to explore the, you know, that kind of family history that they think oh, one day, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll find a way to put that into a novel. And, and this is, this is mine. This is the. This is something that I I wanted to explore for years, and I just couldn't. Um, I had a kind of psychological block about it because it's a, you know there's this this family connection, but also I didn't have the craft. You know, it's it's a much more ambitious book than Foxlow. There's different timelines. There's um, different, many more different settings. You know, Foxlow is really claustrophobic in in that house. Um, whereas Light is is much more wide ranging, and I think I just didn't have the confidence before, and then when I was really lucky and Foxlow did well, like that did give me the confidence um, um, to try it. And, and I really came to it, it's, it's really it's all starts with, with my grandfather, um, who I knew as George, but his real name was Yesha or Yetzi. Um, he's a Polish immigrant um, and, and, a, and a survivor. Um, and we had this, you know, he's a really wonderful man and he died when I was a teenager and, um, actually a lot like the character in your book, Kim, he, he, it wasn't something, it wasn't a part of his life that he shared. Um, and it just wasn't something that, um, that was really spoken of, except in these kind of really delicious, kind of intriguing snatches about things. And you'd get these kind of little, just throwaway comments in this brilliant Polish accent that he had. Um, and one of the things that, one of the things that kind of stuck in my mind is this painting that would come up sometimes, the girl in the red dress. Um, and and that painting is of my um, grandfather's aunt, and it just it 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 became just sort of something that I, I got used to hearing would come up every so often, and um, and then years and years later, um, 
long after Yesha had, had died, um, I was in Paris and I, I was, I'd moved to Paris as you do when you're 24 and don't know what to do with your life. And um, I was with my dad, um, my mum and dad, and we went to the Holocaust Memorial in Paris because one of the things, that's one of the things my family does, because I think one of the things that happens, and Kim, I don't know if this is true for you, but it's kind of this obsession with the Holocaust in my family is that, you know, is if if you go for dinner with us and we have enough wine, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about the Holocaust. It's this strange obsession. And my dad particularly will keep going back to it. And so we went to the Holocaust Memorial and my, um, uh, my grandfather's father's name, Ignazi, was on the memorial wall. And it just really stayed with me. You know, my, my dad got really emotional, which he doesn't do. And, um, and, and it was a really emotional moment. And I just felt this, this was back in 2008. So long before I actually came around to writing this. But I felt this terrible shame that I really didn't understand this history. I mean, I, I, and it, it was this strange moment of shock when I saw the name. Um, and, I, and then I felt, well, how would I not, how could I not know that this was here? How could I not know that Ignazi, who's George's, father had been deported to Drancy and then to Auschwitz. Why didn't I know that? Why didn't I know about that? Mm. Um, and I think that's something that, again, is quite a common feeling um, of people that, you know, who are of this generation and the generations after perhaps. Um, you can stop me at any point, by the way, sorry, this is a long story, but then <laughs> um, when I came to decide, right, I'm gonna try this. I'm gonna try and write a book about this stuff. I'm gonna try and write a book about these feelings. I'm gonna try and write a book about what it, you know, this, this sort of strange confluence of obsession and not looking at it that happens. Um, and I got, I was really lucky, got an arts grant to go to Krakow and I went to see the painting. Um, and that was a really extraordinary experience. I went with my dad and Really, I think the heart of the book for me is about is sort is about my dad and about my granddad and trying to understand them and trying to understand that aspect of their psychology and and that kind of aspect of my family culture that that doesn't practice, you know, that doesn't really speak of ourselves as as Jewish particularly, mm. and yet there it is a part of our identity and it's part of trying trying to understand Yesha and there's this strange feeling of um, kind of desert between. <laughs> Mm. between us and him and sort of that again came this is something that really struck me looking at reading your book that kind of feeling that it was as though his life started afterwards well this is um, something i would love yeah. to pick up on at this point because kim your book testament it also has a george you know at its heart <laughs> one way or the other um it also has you know the girl in the red dress that eleanor is talking about your color is blue there is an artist um at the heart of this book and ideas of painting oneself about identifying about memory and celebrating that or denying that they really run through both of your novels but Kim I wonder if you could introduce Testament a bit. Sure yeah um, yeah a lot of what you were saying there Anna, really uh, resonates with me as well um, so I began uh, writing Testament in uh, 2012 when my grandfather, George, uh, passed away. Um, and uh, the book really kind of arose out of two sides of the family kind of, I suppose, events on two sides of the family coming together. Um, my grandfather passed away and, and he and I were very close um, and I really felt very lost without him. I felt lost in grief. And for me, writing is, is one way to find myself 
So I turned to writing um, to try and reground myself. At the same time, while I was doing that, my grandmother, Morika, who's a Hungarian Jewish survivor, began to tell me about her experiences as a child in the Holocaust for the first time. And she'd actually lived with us when I was growing up, but she hadn't um, uh, shared much with us then. So this was kind of the first time I was learning about that family history significantly. Um, so, you know, when in doubt, go to a library, went to my local library, began to learn about the Holocaust in Hungary, and again, turned to writing as a way to understand what I was reading. So these two things um, kind of came together. Testament opens, sort of spoiler, because it happens in the very first line, it opens with a grandfather dying. Um, and he is, he's an artist, um, as you mentioned, Dan, who can only see the color blue. Um, and it's interesting what you were saying, Eleanor, about the the kind of the driving force of, of research and that as a as a sort of powerful um, powerful way, I suppose, to return to the past and move forward at the same time in a family. I visited the um, mass grave where my grandmother's uncle is buried in northern Hungary, actually with my dad. We we both happened to be in Hungary together at the same time, which was a kind of random confluence of events on an Aristotelian level. Uh, so we went to this wood together um, and visited the site and it, it really meant, meant a lot to me. Mm. And in terms of both of your books are dealing with obviously real life events, you know, global tragic, you know, events that affect and continue to affect a great deal of people. When you, I can, I can completely understand a level of trepidation about tackling this because as well as wanting to do justice to the to the subject and also to the family i suppose it must you must have a great sense of i suppose responsibility especially now when people are you know there is a lot of fake news and you know the the holocaust denial is on the rise and here you both are writing these amazing vital books which are very close to home, but also important, you know, at a global level in what they talk about. I wonder if that was something that was in your head, if we could, if Eleanor, I start with you. Um, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think it's one of the reasons it took me so long. I mean, that trip, the experience in Paris was in 2008 <laughs> and it, it took me so many years to muster up the courage to write this. I had to break through a lot of anxiety about, um, about writing about this period um, for the reasons you stated and, and particularly fictionalizing it. I felt, I, I talked it through quite a lot with, um, with quite a few people, that idea of, um, you know, because there are obviously fixed points and there are things that, um, you know, the 1st of September, 1939 happens and, um, you know, the deportation happens, but I've, I've fictionalized, I've placed really fast and loose with the facts, with character. Um, of what happens in my family in particular. And I've taken these family stories and completely fictionalized them. And, and you know, the painting, I've moved the date of the painting to fit my purposes. I've, um, I've changed Yosefa, who is the real subject of the painting into a completely different person. But then I've kind of, you know, bastardized and used different bits of family story. And I had to really be brutal with myself about doing that and just give myself permission to do that. Um, I wrote in the acknowledgements, you know, I thanked, George, my granddad, for presumably being okay with that because he hasn't haunted me yet about <laughs> it. Um, 
and and you know I spoke to my dad about it I did have some personal anxieties about that but on a broader scale I did I did feel anxious about getting things right mm. um and you know it, you do I think writing about this period and 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 the Holocaust, I suppose, although albeit I'm writing about the Holocaust quite deliberately, very indirectly, you know, I don't have any scenes in the camps. Um, I glance at it. Um, but even so, yeah, I think there's a there's a trepidation that does come with that just because there there are elements of society that are looking for things, you know, to oh I, I caught you out see it didn't happen you know I've researched this and this book said it you know mm. but it is it I had to keep just coming back to the idea that I'm you know I'm not a historian I've, I'm a novelist and it is it's a novel it's for me it's about um those characters and ideas and that psychology that's that's what I'm interested in um mm. and so yeah I had to I mean I, I was looking through my journals actually today to you know to sort of get into the right headspace for tonight and <laughs> I mean it really is I just constantly am just yelling at myself like, just do it <laughs> you know because I, I I really did freeze for a long time over it. Thank you. Yeah I think that anxiety for me was also certainly there um, but it in a way when I began writing it so it took six years to write and when I began writing it I didn't know or really imagine that anybody would read it. You know, it was coming from a need that I had. And then as I kept going and it, and it became uh, sort of more likely that maybe other humans in the world might read it, that fear rose. But I always had this sense that a lot of the language around the Holocaust is that it's uh, incomprehensible or incommunicable, which suggests that as an event, it lies outside of, of human language but if something lies outside of our language then it's as if it's not human as if it's nothing to do with us you know as if it's almost ahistorical and and inhumane um and that way we as as humanity avoid all responsibility for it happening so for me i think it's important that we that we keep talking about it and that we keep writing about it you know even if those attempts fall short um because we have to keep it alive especially as you were saying Dan in the face of the rise of the far right today. Mm. I wonder um, might we be able to to hear some of the books um, I know I said that perhaps a little bit later but it seems like such a wonderful hearing you both talk about the books I would love to to hear some of the words that are in them um, I don't know who would like to go first I know I'm nominally the chair but you know I'll put you in <laughs> who, who would like to read first. Eleanor go for it. Oh. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> and it seemed kind but it wasn't <laughs> thank you <laughs> um okay i'll i'll just read from the beginning and just i guess we should we should have set up a secret signal for if i'm going too long just wait yeah put, put a secret signal on or something <laughs> okay this is this is the opening of the book the odeveld apartment was the last building on the grand ulika benedinska its final corner jewel. One side looked out over the river, but it was the sight from the dining room the neighbours envied, a perfect view of Varvel Castle. The red brick walls of the Varvel jutted out into the street as though reaching for their neighbour, and a turret sat exactly opposite the window of the main drawing room, as though they had been designed to mirror each other. Dining in that drawing room under the gaze of portrait faces in golden frames, many imagined they were at the Varvel itself, some state occasion, looking out over the terraces and turrets, the flash of green lawn. 
Adam Oderfelt liked to smoke his pipe on the apartment terrace with his artist friends and watch the sky darken over the green tinged tower tops. On summer evenings, the family threw open the windows and invited neighbours and friends for parties in the shadow of the heart of Poland. Janina Kardas was navigating her way towards the Oderfelt apartment in the strangely cheerful sunshine of early afternoon. She wore her best clothes, a fur hat and a heavy winter coat, beautifully tailored with a matching ermine trim. The coat and hat were too warm for early September in the city, but she wished to display herself today as a woman of obvious good breeding. She remembered snatches of German refugee tales, how people were stopped in the street. She imagined herself seized, accosted, jostled, until the attacker, in some kind of uniform, noticed her coat, her hat, and looked then into her delicately lined face, not young or pretty enough to be in danger, she comforted herself, but somehow authoritative. He would step back, uneasy, for surely she knew people, surely her husband was someone of importance. And Janina's imaginary self sneered a little, tugged her clothing back into place, patted her hat back onto its perch and strode away. Janina passed the shuttered bakery, Two weeks ago, the baker had been holding forth yet again, lectures that war was coming. It had been the same for weeks, pastries and doom, and she was irritated by it. The shelves and displays had all been empty that day, and upstairs, heavy footsteps had dragged heavier furniture. You're leaving. It will happen soon, he'd said, chewing the thin lips on his lean face. So wrong for a baker, he really ought to be fat, adding, I'm going to Lvov, I'm not sticking around. But my rolls and doughnuts, she had replied, the baker had rolled his thin lips in and out, then leaned in so she could smell the ginger on his breath. You are crazy, he whispered. You should get out of Krakow, you and all your set. He nodded slowly as though passing on a secret code. What a lot of hysteria, she said. She lowered her voice. I'm not some poor Jew in Germany. And so what about my pastries? Am I to starve because of your paranoia? The baker shrugged, dismissing her, and she swept out past a group of poorer women who had caught the idea, war, in the room and were worrying about it. Only a week later, Janina thought the word war had become so familiar it had lost its sting until the radio spoke it and she could have folded in on herself like an earwig in terror. Now she tried to ignore the crowd who were muttering phrases that frightened her. A woman holding a boy's hand wearing an ugly green shawl was saying to an old man, but we've surrendered, haven't we? The radio. And as she passed a couple pulling suitcases, the woman's hair all in disarray, pin sticking out like a sewing cushion doll, Yanina heard the man muttering, they say the army is decimated, just utterly decimated. As she hurried down Benedinska, Yanina yelped as people brushed against her, even jostled her without apology, crushing the fur on the edge of her coat. She heard snatches of conversations that made her head pound. They became a rhythm with her feet on the pavement. No, it is a matter of days. It is a matter of hours. It is now. We must leave. We must leave. Thank you. That was great. Um, Kim, I think, are you going to read from the start as well? Yes, I'll read. Um, I'll read from the beginning as well. That was a beautiful reading, Eleanor. I well, love thanks, Kim. Um, While Kim's preparing, Eleanor, can you um, show your mug to everyone, please? <laughs> spaniel mug. Sleeping spaniel mug. Amazing. This beauty is not with me. He's in Sussex with my parents. I'm sorry. Enjoying, what enjoying the lockdown in Sussex. This is Dylan. Dylan, lovely. He is, he is a very bad and very beautiful dog. 
There we go. So <laughs> this is. <laughs> I can't really top the dog, but I'll try. Um, <laughs> this is just the uh, the opening pages as uh, Eva says goodbye to her grandfather, who's known as Silk. This is the last conversation we will have. Silk, where did it go? I didn't go anywhere. I'm right here. A half smile. He is king of the half smile. A patient grandfatherly smile that tells me I am not interpreting him correctly, but that he has the time to teach me how to read him. Eva, my girl, did it know I loved it? Yes, I know. Birds perform evensong in the horse chestnut outside his bedroom window, inviting me to escape through the half-drawn curtains from one scene to another, leaving Silk's deathbed backstage. We used to do that together, clamber in and out of ground floor windows, trailing mud and paint. Never use demarcated exits, he'd tell me, six years old, no idea what demarcate meant, but swearing suspicion against all maps and signposts. I look over my shoulder at the tree, don't take this exit, I want to tell him. Stay with me. But I can't. Not when the silk I know has been forced to surrender pronouns and poetry and can no longer implore me either. Only a selfish love exhorts a man not to go gentle into that good night. The horse chestnut is weak, holding up rain-soaked leaves. I think of the pink blossom Van Gogh painted from the window of his madness. I hear the trill of wood pigeons and remember a line from a nature documentary. When the birds stop singing, that will be the sound of extinction. Whistling pierces the bedroom inside our walls. It's silk, his cracked lips pursed. He does it again, a brief wood warbler, a party trick for summer picnics that is so loud and so sustained by the silent house, it is like the ringing of crystal glass. Silk plucks at my hand. I don't want to understand. It might be the last thing he ever teaches me, apart from how to manage death. But after another nudge, I inflate my lungs for an off-tune bastardization of the rondelie outside. He laughs, does it himself, pitch perfect. I copy, once, twice, until finally I am good enough, and he folds his lips together, shutting a suitcase. Then follows the procedure of medicine, blankets, pulling curtains to shut out pockets of polluted dusk, pockets I release at his protest, before finally burrowing my hand into his ready fist. Good night. A creaking floorboard tells me that I am walking away from him, and as with every time I leave him, I think, this could be it. I love you. In the dark, he might have been winking. The stage management of loss. You think you will remember separate moments, a final breath, the weight of morning light across his legs, but the script changes. Loss does not keep to its moment. There is a keenness about grief, a sharp greed to it, hungering inside you. I do not remember if it really was our last conversation, our last touch, our last lesson, or whether when I went back to him that night, fearing death had infiltrated the scars and sores of his body, old and new, which I had discovered in these last week's intrusion into his privacy. Whether we exchanged a joke, a story, a word of thanks, before he left. 
but I do remember this, the birds did not sing again in his lifetime. And I'll stop there. Thank you. That was lovely. Really can beautiful. We, can we talk a little bit more about silk? Because silk is, in a very interesting way, but not a completely unique way, a self-made man. Mm. He has escaped, he is a survivor, and he has come to Britain after the war, and he has completely reinvented himself. Mm. Um, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Absolutely, yeah. So he um, he arrives in Britain as a refugee aged 18, having survived forced labour and the concentration camps. Um, and as you say, he, he wants to kind of remake himself, be reborn. He anglicises his name, he learns an English accent. Um, and that kind of came from my research. So I did a lot of uh, archival research and a lot of travelling for the book. One of the archives that I used is the, uh, the Viner Library in London, which is actually the oldest Holocaust library in the world. I think they began collecting in 1933, remarkably, um, or perhaps even earlier. So amongst their amazing collection, they have these um, boxes of advice pamphlets that were published uh, for refugees about kind of how to get along in England. And some of the advice is things like uh, wear woolen underwear, you'll be cold in British houses, which is probably true. Um, if you're lonely, go to a library, good advice. Uh, you can always trust the policeman, possibly. Um, and then one of, the, one of the bits of advice was uh, don't speak your own language if you're German Jewish. Learn English as quickly as possible. And don't speak with your hands, don't use big hand gestures because it's very European. So essentially try and appear as English as possible. And this advice pamphlet said, because there's nothing to distinguish you to the man in the street as a refugee and not a Nazi. And that idea, when I came across that sentence in the library, that idea just kind of, I felt it like a blow, this idea that you could have had to leave everything behind. The only thing you escaped with is your life you've come to a place where you think perhaps you might be safe, perhaps you might be at home, and you're told that to the people there, you look like the perpetrator, you sound like the perpetrator. Mm -hmm. um, and so I imagined how Silk would feel aged 18 in London, having just arrived as a refugee, reading this advice. And I felt his reaction almost kind of physically in my body, his reaction was fine, then I'm just going to be simple. I'm just going to be English and nobody can ever question me and I'm not going to speak of it. Whereas his brother Laszlo, um, his younger brother, has the kind of opposite reaction. He, he ends up moving to Israel, he really embraces their past, he becomes a speaker about it at memorial events and for him it's a case of then I'm going to hold on to it as fiercely as I can. And the two brothers have a, a sort of schism down that line. Mm. And Eleanor, in terms of your research, you've spoken about going to Krakow, um, what, what sort of form did your re research take when you decided that this was a project you were going to pursue? Um, so yeah, the trip to Krakow was, was really important. Um, I, I went to see the painting and I spoke to um, the director of the National Museum in Kielce, which is where the painting um, lives, where the real Josefa girl in a red dress lives. Um, and he was amazing. He spent uh, with his translator, um, Cynthia, um, he spent a long time talking to me about Yosefa and her life. He'd written a book about Yosefa um, and 
I I promptly took you know really really detailed notes and then and then fictionalized all of it and changed all of it. Um, I think much to his horror. Um, so I I did that. Um, I I spent quite a lot of time um, in <laughs> in Jewish um, cemeteries, which I I I found I still find incredibly moving. And I had this whole idea actually that I, again ended up being cut, but that I'd love to return to about the memory walls with mm -hmm. the. Um, the smashed up um, parts of um, synagogues and um, and memory tablets have been have been smashed up and they've they've been put into walls, the fragments, so you can just see the kind of mm. um, broken bits of, of speech. And I kind of uh, you know explored that. Um, I I found the Schindler Museum really useful. I got a lot of material from there. I used the Spielberg archive a lot, um, and a lot of the stories from there I kind of spun into different. Um, again, fictionalized and span out and, and changed, um, but they, you know, those details are there and are real. So things like um, the detail about when people came back to Krakow, having been deported to Russia, and they were faced with banners saying, "For every carload of coal, we get a carload of Jews." Um, that happened, um, and and it still didn't. It's denied that that happened. Um, still in Poland by by some factions in in Polish government. Um, and I also, I, I found, came across this fantastic film, this documentary film called Safe by Deportation, um, I, which is by Slavomir Grunberg. Um, and that is, that gave me a huge amount of detail for the Russia sections. Um, so I, yeah, I feel like I, I kind of, I had a moment of kind of breathing in for maybe a year or so. And I, I just, and then I almost, it's, it's almost a mysterious process to me. I know that sounds ridiculous because it's in my head, but it's, it's, it's somehow then in the fictionalization of it, um, becomes something else and, and becomes part of those characters and becomes part of those lives. So I have to actually go back into notebooks to figure out what is research and what is, fictional, which I guess takes me back to that place of anxiety I was talking about before about fictionalizing something like this. But there are certain details that are kind of, I know of course are family details. And then there are other details that are sort of picked up along the way, even from friends. So my best friend is, is Jewish and she gave me, um, she sent me a lot of archive material about her family. And one of just one tiny little detail out of all of those thousands of pages that I read um, was that some of her family hid behind the oven in Lvov and I just took that tiny little detail and gave it to one of the characters, things like that. I wonder, I mean, both of your books are so steeped in art and art process to, I mean, collage seems like a good sort of analogy for the writing process mm. of these things. I, I always think that when I'm doing research, equally sketching. Um, and I loved Kim in the back of Testament, you have in your thanks, you have this line, a very, I found it incredibly moving. A shopkeeper in Prague helped me find the site. Um, mm. I don't know how to pronounce it. I'm sorry, um, Belgica Street Hostel. Yes, well, I was about to say you're close, as if I can speak yeah. fluent Czech. <laughs> I'm going to say you're close. <laughs> Um, I wonder, and, that, and it was little fragments like that, little smithereens throughout both of your books that I found intensely moving. This, I, you know, you ha it rings true. There's this fidelity to, you know, accident and to luck, both good and bad beyond words. Mm. Um, I wonder if Kim, you could tell us about Prague. Yeah, absolutely. So Prague was my uh, sort of final research trip in the process of researching the novel. I actually kept putting it off. 
um, because I was going there to uh, find out about the experience of children in Theresienstadt, and which is the the ghetto and camp outside of Prague. Um, and I kept saying, I'll go soon, I'll go soon. And then I was going to Hungary and I was going to Germany and Serbia. And so I was, kept saying, it'll be the next one, it'll be the next one. Um, and then eventually the book was actually being copy edited and typeset. I said to my editor, just one more trip. She loved me that day. And <laughs> went to, I went to Prague and I was there for two weeks and I was going to um, archives and I was going to different streets in the city to find where my characters would have lived. Uh, but I kept putting off actually going to Theresienstadt. And then on the sort of penultimate day of the trip, I thought, uh, you know, people at home were saying to me, you know, you, didn't, you don't have to go. And I thought, you know, I'm, I'm an hour from it. <laughs> I brought myself this far. Um, so I got on the bus, uh, went to Theresienstadt, and um, it was it was a very strange day. So Theresienstadt um, is almost a ghost town now so uh, it it housed uh, didn't really house it kept prisoner um over a hundred thousand people in its in its roofs in its cellars um and now most of the town which is this kind of austro-hungarian fort town actually very beautiful most of it is empty so you can walk down whole streets past barracks past uh, military stations past past torture cells and then come across the corner shop and somebody's really nice garden. So it's, it's very sort of surreal. Um, and I spent the day there trying to, as much as is possible, capture uh, the kind of details that you maybe can't get in a library or an archive. So uh, for example, the, the walls in Theresienstadt are very tall and I was there on a baking hot day, but for most of the day I was actually in shadow because of these really tall walls, so I was very cold. And that kind of fed it, sort of found its way into how I was describing the characters. Um, and I was, as I said, I was kind of dreading going there. Um, and at the end of the day, I, I was making notes by the, the train tracks that lead to Auschwitz, which were, were built into the center of the ghetto. I was making notes and then I dropped my pen. And I said to myself, you know, losing your pen by the train tracks to Auschwitz doesn't mean anything. There's no symbolism to this. It's not a metaphor for anything, um, except I'm a writer. And so everything is a metaphor for something. <laughs> so I just couldn't let it go. And I was walking up and down these, these tracks trying to find my pen while telling myself I was being completely ridiculous. Um, and then probably about 15, 20 minutes later, I saw the sun wink off my pen between the sleepers and I found it. And the relief that settled through my body um, I really felt like I can I can let go now, and I went down to there's a there's a river that moves through the town where they um, they scattered uh, thousands of people's ashes, and I went down to this river and there were these kids learning to swim, um, and I just stood in the water and uh, cooled down my very baking hot feet, um, and held onto my pen and kind of as as ridiculous as it as it sounds I sort of I felt like. I'm going to be okay and my book's going to be okay. And I suppose that, as you say, that's that's in the book. But we've had a question actually um, from some of the people watching and the question is about the idea of inherited trauma. Mm. So when you're talking about the, you know, feeling, you know, having gone mm. and, and feeling that, um, of course, relatives of both of you were there and felt it in a very different way 
in um, and I wonder the echo, the resonance of that, you know, the very real fact that, you know, you will not have relations that you might have met. Um, how did that manifest when you were when you were growing up? I mean, was it a sense of absence in both of your families? You've already spoken about the sort of the silence to some degree or the or the ellipses, you know? I wonder, mm -hmm. Eleanor, if you could. Um, I remember being, I mean, I think as a child, you just accept your reality, don't you? I, I don't remember questioning anything really until I was a bit older and I was a very self-absorbed child and teenager anyway. Um, but I do remember seeing um, a family tree at some point. So my, my dad, as I said, was always really interested in this and, and wanted to find things out. And I remember him getting quite interested in um, researching things and make, trying to make a family tree. And there was this extraordinary moment where in 1942, it just cuts off. There are, you know, it's you talk about metaphor, you know, that there are all of these branches and they just stop in 1942 and there is this sense of of seeing it like that I remember being really struck by that as a teenager I think I must have been a, a teenager or very young adult when I when I saw that and the second moment that I remember really feeling it or, or I suppose seeing maybe it was more when my dad started to share things more with us as we were older when my uncle died my I remember my dad saying to me you know I feel as though there's just this desert stretching out behind me I'm suddenly the oldest in the family mm. and I don't have the roots I don't feel that I understand enough and you know it's it's too late and I can't find out and um that I that feeling I did put into the book I wanted um the character of George really feels that that mm. if you if you don't, that sense of, you know, your ancestry is gone and you, you know, you, you, your roots only go for, you know, the, your roots feel really shallow, I suppose. Mm -hmm. And that is really difficult. There's At the same time, sorry. Bit, there's a lovely bit towards the end of your book where you have these two wonderful characters who are sitting at a cafe table and they are drawing the family tree yeah. and they are talking to each other about the shared history, you know, and they're filling in the gaps. And I wonder if that is, I mean, if we, Kim, I mean, the idea of filling in the gaps, the idea of speaking for those who cannot speak for themselves. Mm. Um, I mean, that's, that's through, that's through both of your books, but I think in a way it resonates in a different way with your book because the, the medium, you know, with, with Silk's art, with his um, sort of like monochromania, you know, the fact that he is, he is so fixated in quite a Maggie Nelson kind of way uh, <laughs> on blue. Um, it's quite interesting, the, you know, his ellipses, what he chooses to say and how he says it. Mm. Yeah, so he, the kind of, the central, perhaps the central crisis of the book in a way is whether or not either the granddaughter will allow Silk's witness testimony to become public after he dies, which would change this kind of erased identity he's constructed. Um, he has he's created this um, uh, as you were saying, Eleanor. There's almost this kind of desert behind him, this blank identity, and he's filled it with the color blue. So um, he can only see the color blue for for reasons I won't spoil. But he's a he's an abstract expressionist, so it's it, it works. And um, for me, that that color was significant, um, kind of for a few different reasons. But one of them was that uh, he grows up by the Danube, and and he loves the Danube as a as a boy. And it kind of follows him through his paintings 
for the rest of his life. Um, and he also, he can't see the, the color red. So in a way he can't see some, you know, uh, uh, some of the critics, some of the art critics in the book would argue he can't see the damage, he can't see the violence. Instead, he's seeing the Danube. He would say, I'm just painting. Uh, if I know what it means, I'll stop painting, leave me alone. He's kind of trying to resist these, these interpretations. I wanted to respect his silence um, as well as respect his brother's need to talk because there is something where you were saying down about kind of bringing things back. For me, the, a lot of the research I did in Budapest and spending so much time by the Danube, that was one of the most important parts of, of writing the book for me because I felt like I almost reclaimed Hungary for myself. You know, our, our family was forced to leave and I now feel like I know Budapest as well as I know London where I grew up. And that's so special for me to feel like I've perhaps reclaimed that heritage, I suppose. Sure. Um, you touched on the idea of violence there with Silk's, you know, inability to see red, perhaps his, you know, he's a man who in the book reveals himself to be incredibly capable and, and he's full of self-knowledge, he's full of empathy, and he he hides that a lot of a lot of the time and, and mm. is quite childlike in his assumed ignorance of certain things. Mm. Um, and I wondered if I could ask you both about violence because there is violence in both of your books. And sometimes, as you were saying earlier, Eleanor, it's glimpsed, you know, you're, 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 you're you're neither showing nor telling quite, you're alluding. And that's almost more profound because we don't want to see and we can't see, and that makes it worse. Um, because then your imagination just runs. Um, all these places that you didn't know you had inside you. Kim, there's, there's some quite, you know, brutal violence in your book, which is entirely apt, of course, because I mean, any um, sort of illusion of that would, be wholly inappropriate for the topic. But I wonder if I could ask you both about writing violence like that. You know, it's a very, it's a tightrope, I imagine. Mm -hmm. You know, when you're you're talking about fictionalizing things and then the violence of a very violent event. Eleanor, I wonder if you could talk about that a little. Sure. Yeah, I mean the um I suppose the main the murders you don't see. Um and I'm I suppose there I'm I'm creating that that uh, desert that I talked about you know that 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 they're just names that get cut off in 1942 and that's the I suppose that was my experience of it and so I sort of put that in the in the book or my experience of finding out about it um the where I do write about violence a bit more um directly yeah it's a, it is a, I think tightrope is a is a really interesting image to use there I, I kind of I had a similar thing in Foxlow where there's, you know, there's quite a lot of violence in Foxlow, but because I was doing it from the point of view of a child, I could, again, just glimpse at it or not quite, um, you know, use language that, that was a little bit different to kind of not soften it, but but make it not feel quite so graphic. Mm. And one of the one of the main um, kind of inciting incidents of the book in terms of Alicia's character, who's it's who I've turned Giuseppe into, is that she sees her father attacked in the streets, um, which is, is one of the only times that I do look at it directly. And it's actually, you know, all violence is terrible, but it's, you know, he's not seriously hurt, but it's the fact that someone's put their hands on her dad, on her father, and he's 
she sees him as a really important man, but they've recognized that he's Jewish and it's, it's part of that turn um, that is, you know, this kind of slow sleepwalking into disaster of the book. Um, and so it was quite important to me to show that quite directly because I needed the reader to feel her shock um, in that moment. Otherwise, yeah, I think I, and, and you know, the other, the other, one of the other main moments of violence is against Sammy and Lvov. But again, you don't see that, you see the, you see the impact afterwards. And again, that's a point of view issue because he's not really a point of view character. So you see their responses to his beating instead. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's so, I mean, I'm really, as a, as a writer, I'm hesitating saying this, but I am quite interested in violence. I think you write, I certainly write about things that I'm scared of. Um, mm. And I really, you know, I fear, I fear violence and I fear violence happening to my loved ones. And I'm, I'm interested in that feeling of the horror of someone you love being hurt and yeah. exploring that. Yes. Mm. And I mean, also, I suppose there's for both of you, the, the idea of describing things that you were not present at, but you are still the recipient or rather you're still very much aware of you know, the result of it, you know, when you're talking about aftermath, the aftermath is still ongoing. Mm -hmm. And Kim, I remember we were having conversations when you were writing uh, this about the idea of aftermath and the idea of witness as well. Mm. Yeah, um, a lot of the violence that I describe is from witness testimonies. So all of all of the acts of violence in the book are, are true, they're from historical record. Um, that, that felt important to me. And so there's a there was a committee set up uh, in 1945, the Hungarian Committee for Attending Deportees, and they they interviewed people returning to Budapest from the camps. And um, I was very fortunate. Just as I began writing the novel, the the full set of questions uh, put to the survivors were found. That the questions had been separated and scattered across archives across Europe. Uh, but a researcher in Hungary and a researcher in Israel had come together and they'd united these questions. So I, I, I got in touch with them and I asked them, would you mind if I looked at them and used them in my novel? And they very kindly said, yes. And then they said, but it's in Hungarian. Do you read Hungarian? One of my flaws is that I don't read Hungarian. But very kindly, the poet George Sietesh agreed to translate them for me, which was really, really kind. So 360 of these questions. So they arrived uh, in my inbox in English. And the questions really show the kind of the way the way the world understood what had happened was about to change. The questions are things like, did you witness any violence? Were any crimes committed? So they're really coming from a place of we don't know yet. We're just learning. Mm -hmm. And that really struck me, um, the, the importance of, of, of those survivors answers, because they were they were being witnesses to that truth. So I wanted as as best as I could to to try and capture that uh, in testament, and I have the, um, the the questions that were put to those survivors. They run as a kind of structural spine through testament. Mm. Yeah, I, mean, I was really struck by that when I was sorry, Dan. When I was reading it, I was that when it came to that first set of questions, mm. it's really powerful. Mm. No, fine. Um, both of you are, I think, are in that way engaged with translation and uncovering you know both of your books really are about that you mentioned earlier Eleanor the idea of the family hiding behind the oven mm. um, and 
without I don't think it gives too much away to say cupboards are very important in your book the idea of a sort of like um a sort of I don't know there's when you say cupboards and novels people probably think of Narnia and then of course what we're talking about is kind of the polar opposite of, kind of like a wonderful world in the back of a cupboard um you know but you do get these kind of um I suppose People are, I can imagine readers of both of your books will be surprised and have the rug pulled from them because it's not always, the moments you think will be darkest are not always darkest. There's there's humor in both of your books. You know, there's the absurd crops up quite a lot, you know, because, and, and the fact of something is senseless, but also it's kind of absolutely ridiculous. You know, the ridiculous is, is really profoundly present in both of your books. But I wonder, Eleanor, I think we're going to wrap up in a minute, but if I've we've probably got about five minutes left. Eleanor, if I could ask you about the idea of concealment and cupboards as a plot device, and I think you had some fun with this. I have to say something really profound about cupboards to finish the, yes. <laughs> the talk. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I, it's true that I do, I do conceal things all over the place. Um, in the in the novel and there's a there's a central mystery about this painting and what happens to it and where it's been hidden that I won't give away um but yeah I mean I again research I suppose came into that that, that you I felt this sense that just obviously some people did get out and did take those journeys like the one I explore but there's also suddenly people disappearing into sewers and people disappearing behind walls and under floorboards and behind wardrobes and this this almost dark twisted fairy tale sense of people melting away behind things um and I did find that a really interesting image um and it, you know the I suppose the question of of the thing hidden is um it's really hard to do this without without doing a spoiler but <laughs> that for me the interesting thing as well was that it, it time passes so much that it becomes something else it's it's intent it's hidden for a particular reason and that reason stops making sense mm. um and it becomes about something else and the meaning of that thing and that place even and you know the world has kind of turned around it and it stops being meaningful everyone who would have known what that meant is gone um, so I, I I wanted to explore that idea with the with the hiding things, but the real painting was hidden behind a wardrobe, and it had this you know the real painting had this extraordinary kind of story of its own. It's like a character. It like gets hidden behind a wardrobe, and then someone stole it, but for the frame and like chopped the painting, you know, just like on a sideboard, and then it turned up in some crook's house, and then he got arrested, and it's it gets hidden all the time, and it's got its own great story, the mm. actual girl in the red dress. And I suppose that idea also of reading and concealment, you know, the painting itself, in fact, the art in both of your books um, is read in different ways by different people at different times, you know, and it reveals itself, you know, um, and the stories of the artists, um, you know, Joseph in yours and Silk, you know, in yours, the story, it's really re unpacking the idea of process as much as anything else. And you can really see yourselves having fun with the writing process of that, you know, these layers and layers and layers. And I think, you know, you're both brilliant in that respect. Um, Kim, I wonder if I could just, just finish um, by just um, unpacking a little bit more about your grandfather, George. Sure. Could you tell me a little bit more about George? Because I think many of the people at home will know him to some degree, perhaps. Yeah, so uh, he was an actor, George Baker, um, probably best known uh, as Inspector Wexford. Um, and uh, he 
so people will know him from the Dam Busters, from from James Bond, um, from um, Little Lord Fauntleroy, uh, from Doctor Who. <laughs> and uh, when he um, passed away, it was um, it was really amazing and strange because he passed away, and then his voice was on the radio and on TV, and his face was on the front page of newspapers when I went to get milk. And I really feel like um, he, you were talking about your your granddad not haunting you yet. Um, I feel like he's been haunting me in a in a very nice way all the way through the process of this book. Yeah, I mean, the my favorite thing that you've I think you told me about him is he was Ian Fleming's choice to play James Bond. Yes, Sean Connery, because Fleming yes. didn't want Sean Connery to play Bond. He wanted your grandfather. Well, I'm not going to cast aspersions on Sean Connery. I mean, how could I? But um, <laughs> yes, Ian Fleming and uh, was having uh, dinner with uh, Broccoli and and and, and Saltzman and, and saw uh, George in a restaurant and, and knew him from his roles and, and went over and kind of tapped him on the shoulder and said, this is my bond. And um, he was signing contracts and things were raring to go. Um, but then a, a, a contract he was already tied into with another studio wouldn't let him go. Uh, so he couldn't play bond, but he did. Um, turn up in the Bond film several times as, as admirals and things and he actually voiced um, George Lazenby's love scenes because Lazenby was a little awkward um, and my grandfather was quite the charmer so <laughs> they brought him in for that. Brilliant. So you play Bond, but in the sort of like, you know, in the crucial scenes, you could say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When, uh, when it really had to be, you know, done for Queen and Country. <laughs> there he was. <laughs> I mean, what a glorious ends. Hold me close. Yeah, I need you the most. A glorious end indeed. That was Kim Sherwood, Eleanor Wasserberg, and Dan Richards, their host, speaking together for the Bookbound 2020 Festival. Next time on the Bookbound podcast, the authors Paul Mendez and Niven Govinden talk about their latest books. If you've enjoyed today's episode or any of our other episodes, of which there are now quite a few, then can I suggest you might A, rate us, B, review us, C, subscribe, D, just tell your neighbours? And we would really uh, appreciate it. That was that was my attempt at a gag there. I'm not quite sure I pulled it off, but hey, I gave it my best shot. The Bookbound podcast team is me, that's Georgie Cod, working with the fantastic Claire Reed, Felicity Quick and Beatrice Bazell. Our theme tune, and it haunts me in my dreams, is Wonder Under by the Glad Rags which was found on the free music archive. Take care and we'll see you next time. If you know what I mean, without actually being able to see you. Uh, Take care, take care.